Well, welcome to this, our 76th edition of Palestine Deep Dive. And today I'm very fortunate to be joined by three special guests. Uh, once again, by our good friend Francesca Albanese. She's actually in Sicily today, uh, but uh, she is, of course, the special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territory, to give the full title. Uh, and it's her report that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, it was published on July 10th. And of course, it details, those of you who've been following developments in the news, it details Israel's carceral regime, uh, which the report says has turned the occupied Palestinian territories into an open air prison. And, and that's at the center of what we're going to discuss today. Uh, welcome too, to Neri, Neri Ramati. Uh, Neri is, a, is an Israeli lawyer. Uh, I think uh, Neri is in Dublin uh, and Neri is defending Palestinian children uh, he was a partner in the legal company Gabi Lasky and Partners Law Office, which is a leading human rights office in Israel, specializing in freedom of expression and protest. And he's represented Palestinian, Israeli and international human rights and anti-occupation activists in the military and in the civil courts. So welcome, Neri. And uh, we also welcome Saha Francis. Uh, Saha is in Ramallah. And uh, Saha is a Palestinian human rights defender and the general director of the Palestinian human rights organization, Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Uh, she's a lawyer, has worked for years promoting human rights in the face of Israeli occupation in the Palestinian territories. And as a director of Adamir, she focuses on the political and the civil rights issues in the occupied Palestinian territories especially with a focus especially on Palestinian prisoners and detainees and we'll come to their plight as well but this we I, we thought we would start by going to Francesca first of all because we thought it was a good idea um, to perhaps just give the a little bit of a, a taste of the executive summary of this report when people mention reports uh, that people people's eyes often tend to glaze over but this is a report where no eyes will be glazing over. And of course, there's been a great deal of interest and attention attached to it. There's been a major debate, as we know, in the United States Senate today. Um, and I just thought that um, I would just begin by reading out just a couple of paras and then come directly to you, Francesca, because essentially uh, you uh, posit that Israel's military occupation has morphed the entire occupied Palestinian territory into an open air prison where Palestinians are constantly confined, surveilled, and disciplined. Uh, over 56 years, Israel has governed the occupied Palestinian territory through stifling and criminalization of basic rights and mass incarcerations. Under Israeli occupation, generations of Palestinians have endured widespread and systematic arbitrary deprivation of liberty, often for the simplest acts of life and the exercise of fundamental human rights. Without condoning violent acts that Palestinians may have committed during decades of Israel's illegal occupation, most of their criminal convictions have resulted from a litany of violations of international law, including due process violations that taint the legitimacy of the administration of justice by the occupying power. And the final paragraph I'm gonna read is this. The report finds that since 1967, over 800,000 Palestinians 
including children as young as 12, have been arrested and detained under authoritarian rules enacted, enforced and adjudicated by the Israeli military. Palestinians are subject to long detention for expressing opinions, gathering, pronouncing unauthorized political speeches, or even merely attempting to do so, and ultimately deprived of their status of protected civilians. They are often presumed guilty without evidence, arrested without warrants, detained without charge or trial, and brutalized in Israeli custody. Really, that shows, really throws the things into sharp relief for those of us elsewhere in the world who uh, live uh, under the rule of law and are absolutely shocked when we hear about things like this. Um, so look, um, please do send your questions in uh, to our guest today. Um, my name's Mark Seddon. I, I used to work for the United Nations. I was a speechwriter to the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Um, but I, previously, I was a correspondent for Al Jazeera television. Um, Francesca, if I can begin with you, um, we've just we've just had a, a, a summation of the summary, if you like. Could you just please remind us what legal responsibilities occupying powers have for civilians who are living under that occupation? Uh, thank you, Mark, and let me uh, salute and the other the other guests um, who are with us uh, tonight, Neri um, and Sahar. Uh, the framework, the legal framework that applies to the occupied Palestinian territory, is a composite one. It's made of international humanitarian law, in particular the Fourth Geneva Convention, and international human rights law, with uh, with the latter being the first and the first port of call because uh, humanitarian law is considered lex specialis. So it does apply in when there are active hostilities. Otherwise, human rights law should apply. These uh, frameworks together prescribe um, a detailed set of fundamental rights and minimum protections for civilians uh, in occupied territory and for every human being, in fact. Um, as limiting the faculty of, in this case, of Israel as the occupying power to make recourse to the use of force, including for internment or detention. Uh, Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory are protected persons under international law. You cannot see that reading this report or previous reports of uh, other special rapporteurs or other human rights organizations. But they do have rights to be treated humanely, with dignity at all time, not to be de arbitrarily deprived of liberty, to have a fair trial guarantees, not to be discriminated against, which is precisely what happens. And this is just to mention a few. These are intransgressible protection under international law. Uh, a corollary of it is that there cannot be a target of military uh, military uh, or disproportionate, uh, disproportionate attacks. Uh, when it happens, it often becomes a collective punishment. This is, this is the reality. So there is international humanitarian law, there is human rights law, but let me conclude also by saying that Israel questions and challenges the applicability of both for a variety of reasons. And by doing so, it eliminates the sole legal basis uh, to assess its conduct and to be held accountable. 
Well, thanks, Francesca. And by the way, for those of you who've been in touch saying, please, can we have a link to uh, the report? It is there for you. Um, and thanks also for people getting in touch. Uh, Vicky Nicolaitis, uh, she has got in touch. She says, um, uh, yes, definitely it's an open air prison. Uh, Ed Ledawi says, thank you. Bless you all for your hard work and dedication to humanity and justice. Um, what a terrible way to treat children. Uh, Kirsch says it's a terrifying... It's terrifying to watch how one rich and armed powerful nation is allowed to oppress another country. Um, well, having said that, Francesca, you know, people might say this is a bit of a naive question because we, we kind of sort of know the answer. But it's worth just saying it again. What is supposed to happen if an occupying power is found to be in breach of those international obligations to those who it is occupying? This is this is not a naive. It's a, it's a quite fundamental question because, um, as it is now uh, commonly argued in the in the human rights community, uh, and as my predecessor Michael Link pointed out um, in 2017, the occupation itself operates outside what is permitted under in, uh, international law. So um, we need to ask ourselves what to do. Is not about uh, it's not a question of addressing or dealing with a violation of international law here or there. It's the overall system which is profoundly marked by unlawfulness. So what is the what what does international law says to correct this situation? So the first body of law that comes to mind is the law of state responsibility, according to which Israel my, must uh, cease the unlawful acts or series of acts so and the military occupation which has been the vehicle to in fact colonize acquire uh, illegally um, more and more land by displacing the palestinians so ensure non repetition and third um, offer reparations for the international wrongdoing um, israel of course knows it and doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't intend doesn't show any any eagerness to abide by international law and its consequences. So it's up to states, particularly when thinking that this occupation violates the most fundamental right that any people have, like like the right of self determination, the right to be free from alien occupation and control. Because this this obligation, because this right. Um, is accompanied by an erga omnis obligation, means all states are compelled to act uh, to, to realize the right of self-determination. In that case, the law of state responsibility imposes on them an obligation not to recognize any consequences of the unlawful act, meaning of this unlawful occupation and its manifestations, settlements, etc., um, uh, contribute to a cessation of the violations and ensure non-repetitions. Because this is not happening, there are also countermeasures that are offered um, by the UN Charter, like diplomatic, political, and economic measures that have to be taken against a state which so so um, act in such a defiance of international law. The second element is accountability. There should be justice. There should be a thorough investigation of every violation that takes place 
in the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, what does it mean? That there should be uh, a court um, a, examining the violation and ensuring the perpetrators to justice. Um, the Israeli courts, uh, let alone the military courts, and Neri and Sahar will elaborate on that because they are better fit than anyone else I know on this, but military courts should not try civilians, let alone children, in the first place. So, the, And the Israeli civil courts, like the, the Israeli Supreme Court, has proven uh, unfit or unable to really ensure justice for the Palestinians. So there are only two avenues that remain. One is the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Another is, uh, is universal jurisdiction, main, meaning national courts that have the competence to, um, uh, to try, uh, perp- I mean, to investigate viol- uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes or other crimes that are relevant to the Rome state. I mean, uh, uh, you're, you're almost talking about possibly an establishment of a kind of Nuremberg kind of uh, tribunal. Uh, possibly. But look, Neri, if I can come to you, um, I mean, even reading the report, I mean, and, and of course, we do see an awful lot of of uh, material on social media, even if we don't get it very often so much from mainstream media reporting. We do see images of children being arrested, but this report actually tells us so much more. I mean, children as young as 12 are being arrested and are being detained. Um, and so, Neri, are you able to give us uh, some specific examples that, that you've come across? And I mean, I think Francesca was just setting out where all of this kind of stands in terms of international law. But is, I mean, what, what rights do you have to access and to visit young children? And how long can children be held uh, in detention? Can they be tried at the age of 12? Well, uh, it's again, you have to ask whose children, okay? Because in the same area, there are two kinds of children. Some children with Israeli citizenship that live in settlements cannot be tried in 12, cannot be arrested at the age of 12, cannot be jailed at the age of 12, and actually cannot be part of any of the things that Palestinian children are, are going through. And I'm talking about children who live in a, in a distance of one mile from each other. Okay, One live in a settlement and one live in a Palestinian city. So if we are talking about Palestinian children, Palestinian children are, with a little bit of makeup, actually are uh, charged just as like adults. Okay, It used to be totally like adults, but then in 2009, Israel has passed a very kind of liberal law for Israeli children, and the tension between the the rights of Palestinian children and and Israeli children has become too much. So they kind of try to adapt a little bit the military laws to make the rights of Palestinian children closer to the rights of, of Israeli children. But de facto, they are not. This is all a cosmetics. Because mm. in the end, what's happened to a Palestinian children when he meets the law is first he will meet it in the middle of the night in the form of a soldier, not a policeman. A soldier will enter the house 
and uh, will take them from their bed. There is a whole reason about it. It's, uh, the army keep claiming that it's a more comfortable way to enter the village at night and not uh, uh, seeing a resistance, but the army doesn't afraid to go to the to villages at day now. And still, it likes to arrest the Palestinian children at night. The fact that the children are taken from their bed and they are seeing their parents not resisting to that arrest, it's immediate shock for the child. Now, the child could be from the age of 12, and he would be brought into a jeep. And because it's the middle of the night, he will not be taken immediately to a police station because there will be no police station active to take him. So he will be just uh, uh, be left on a jeep in, during the night until he will get to the police, where he will be questioned usually without a lawyer consent, a lawyer present. And then he, uh, he will probably confess on things that he did or did not do. And that will be the end of his journey because uh, after that confession, there is not a lot that he can do and he will find himself in prison. And Neri, what are most of these children being um, arrested for uh, from their homes at night anyway? Are they are they being filmed throwing stones or the thing? I mean, what is it that they're being arrested and charged and detained for? No, the, the most common uh, offence of, of a child is, is uh, stone throwing. And it's usually stone throwing against uh, the army, which is the army is, of course, the, really protected from those stone throwing, but also stone throwing against objects throwing against cars all kind of that, that is the main uh, felony the it's but it in general it's not about the felony the idea is to take the children from the village the villages that those children are arrested from are not just villages those are villages that are m making the life of the settlement not as comfortable as they want mm -hmm. so in order to make any resistance of a village the, the, uh, just vanish. The best thing is just arrest, uh, arresting the youth. We all know that the youth are the life power of resistance. They are young, they are, have energy, they don't have a lot of duties, and they are a bit stupid. Yeah, we all have been there. So if you take them out of the village, you kind of killed and subdued the village. That is the reason they are really arrested. They are not arrested for stone throwing, they are arrested in order to subdue a village, to, and, and, and to, to intimidate, I suppose, and yes, yes. but also you're then criminalizing young children, and from an early age, uh, who are going to become more and more angry and bitter about their treatment. I mean, it's completely counterproductive. You would have thought, wouldn't you? You would have thought if you have the Palestinian interest in your mind, but you need to think that those judges are. Israeli military judges, okay? Mm -hmm. And when they think about this minor that is coming in front of them, they're thinking about one thing. How will I make the life of the Israelis better? Uh, if you are a Palestinian judge, you, you will think about the boy and you say, okay, if I will bring him back to society and he would uh, finish his school and he, he might go to university, and he might learn something and he might be a, a contributor to a society. So that will be your interest. But if you're an Israeli judge, you're like, okay, this boy is annoying the settlements mm -hmm. around. I'll put him in prison. That will stop it. Mm -hmm. And so that is the main problem is that the, 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 the system cannot treat the children to mm -hmm. their benefit or to the benefit of the Palestinian society. It's only treated them to the benefit of yeah. the Israeli society. 
Thank you, Neri. I mean, Saha, if I if I might come to you, um, uh, and with your particular focus, do do you get to meet uh, Palestinians who are being held in detention, and and can you give us roughly some idea of of how many are currently being held in in detention, and you know the kind of I mean, we've been talking about young young well children, but I mean, perhaps you could give us a, a view about the ages and also gender as well. Yes, sure. Um, actually, myself, I'm a lawyer uh, that is still practicing, at least for the last 25 years, uh, in front of this system. And uh, Domir is uh, an organization that uh, do offer legal aid for the Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli military system. So we do visit and represent on daily basis. Uh, but to get the uh, um, touch of how often and, and how the imprisonment is used actually to control the whole society. Uh, uh, currently, there's 5,000 prisoners inside the Israeli prisons. Uh, 160 of them, they are minors under 18. Around 20 of these minors are arrested without charge, are arrested based on the administrative detention policy without evidences, without clear charge against them, and indefinitely, without limiting the period that they will spend inside prison. Uh, between 30 and 32, they are uh, women prisoners. And uh, the rest, of course, they are uh, adults. All of the prisoners were moved illegally to prisons inside the state of Israel, outside of the occupied territories. This is by itself violation for the international law standards. And they are subjected for lots of violations on daily basis, whether it's on the health neglect, the education, the family visitation, the collective punishments, the torture, the ill treatment that they face on daily basis, add on top the uh, unfair trial procedures. Uh, and the main important, when, when Francesca is saying that the imprisonment is used as a tool, we should understand that Israel since 67 till today developed the military system in order to criminalize every and each aspect of our daily political and civil life. Being a student in your university, and if you dare to be active in supporting a book fair in your university, this is, would be a reason for imprisonment and sentencing you for one year, one year and a half, or sending you for administrative detention if they don't have uh, uh, enough evidences. A journalist could be arrested for incitement, political leader, uh, lawyers, human rights defenders, everyone in the occupied territories could be subjected uh, uh, for imprisonment and prosecution in front of this military uh, system. And, and Saha, what kind of access do um, international human rights monitors have, the Red Crescent and others? And, and also, when, when prisoners have completed their sentence or are released from detention, are they allowed to return home? Or Because you were just saying that they were taken from the occupied territories and put in prisons in Israel. Are they allowed to return home? 
So for the first part of your question, it's just the Red Cross uh, committee that is allowed as an international organization to have access for these prisons, but of course, and the restrictions as well. So whenever the security uh, decides that any person under interrogation is banned lawyer visit, the Red Cross representative would be banned as well. So imagine you could be held under interrogation for three weeks or four weeks under total solitary confinement and totally disconnected and no one, no external body can monitor the torture and the ill treatment that you'd be uh, facing in the interrogation. Uh, and of course, international lawyers or other international organization know they are not allowed into the prisons, not even into the military courts. We need to uh, seek special permits for international observers in order to be able to attend the court sessions. Um, the issue of the release, there is differences between if you would be released within a political agreement like exchange deal, as it happened back in 2011 in the exchange deal with Shalit uh, uh, case, then Israel, for example, forced the deportation of uh, uh, certain prisoners. So uh, uh, around hundreds of the 1,074 that they were released, part of them, they were deported from East Jerusalem and the West Bank to the Gaza Strip. Until now, they're not allowed to come back to the uh, West Bank. And some, they were deported outside of the whole uh, occupied territories to Syria, Turkey, or uh, Jordan. Uh, mm. But if you finish your sentence without any privilege, without an early release, you could go back to your home. But this is, doesn't mean that you're protected because even then you could be rearrested uh, for another uh, case or based on secret information. From those who were released in the uh, Shalit deal, 64 were rearrested and they get back their life sentences two years after the release based on secret information that they became again activists and without any evidences about being involved in the same activities from before, they were receiving the remainings of the life sentence and the life sentence in the Israeli system for the Palestinians, prisoners that they considered security uh, prisoners. It's not uh, limited. It's open uh, uh, sentence. Well, um, I'll come to Francesca in a moment, but, but, but you've been sending in lots of comments. Uh, I'll read some of them out, but there are so many, I'm probably not going to be able to get through all of them. But Raid Shakshak says, uh, Israel does what it does because it is never held accountable for its actions against us, Palestinians. Derek Hans uh, says, Western complicity prevents accountability. Um, Rana Schubert says, uh, exactly, there's no accountability when it comes to the Occupy State of Israel. They block every investigation and any UN resolution is vetoes. Uh, is vetoed. Um, WTech84, I don't know who you are, but uh, there's a question. If, settler, if, if a settler shoots children and kills them, do the soldiers arrest the killers? Um, right, yes. So we've got well, lots and lots of... Uh, Jamal in Leicester has a question. Um, clearly, the Israeli military prison system is a sham. 
and is a violent colonial weapon which has been wielded for decades to cripple Palestinian life on their own land. Should, shouldn't the West be calling for the release of all Palestinian prisoners from Israeli dungeons? Much like during the anti-apartheid mo movement in South Africa when the West was calling for the same. Well, look, we'll come back to those questions in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you, Francesca, coming to you, because you said in your report, these offences appear to be part of a plan to de-Palestinianize the territory, the occupied Palestinian territories. They threaten the existence of the Palestinians as a people, as a national cohesive group. I mean, what, what do you mean by de-Palestination or de-Palestinizing de de territory? Yeah, if I, no get my, if I can get my words out. <laughs> I, I have the same. I, I never know in advance if the word will come out straight or not out of my mouth. So the Palestinianization, as I, as I discuss it, and this is the second report in which I, I make reference to, to this. And there is, there's been some, some reference to this, including by one of my predecessors as a special rapporteur. Basically, is, the, is an attempt to diminish the presence, the identity, and the resilience of the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, attempting also to transform uh, this territory into a perm, or most of it, uh, surely is Jerusalem and uh, the West Bank, into a permanent extension of Israel's metropolitan territory with mm. as few Palestinians as possible. And why did I refer to this in the, in the report? Because if we put this in context, and then I want to come, if time allows, I would like to uh, go back to the context because Sahar made an important point of it, uh, on it. For more than 56 years, just looking at what has happened to the Palestinian people under military occupation, so since 1967 alone, without considering what happened before, the Israel military, the Israeli military, military occupation has prevented the realization of Palestinianness, like the Palestinian uh, existence as a people through their right of self-determination, how so? By violating, as I argued in the first report I wrote, uh, their territorial sovereignty, by violating the sovereignty over natural resources. Um, more, most important, by threatening the cultural existence of, of the Palestinians as a people. And how, how does it happen? by appropriating, erasing, and suppressing any manifestation, any symbol of Palestinian identity. And you can see that in, in, in acts that aim to ban the Palestinian flag, to suppress uh, Palestinian school, school curricula, um, eliminating attempting to eliminate Palestinian history by apprehending, seizing, and converting anything that is Palestinian, Muslim or Christian, doesn't matter, into something else. And, and you can see this, this has already happened a lot in East Jerusalem, and it's happening, happening more and more in, um, in, the, in the West Bank. Uh, 
but there is also another component which I, I mentioned in the first report and it's clear, it becomes clear in the second report in, and in the use of mass incarceration. Israel targets the formation and expression of Palestinian identity. Why there is this, this persecutorial attitude towards students, toward children? It's because this frustrates the people from the very beginning, like strangling their possibility to exist as a people. And um, I, in the in the report, in the last in the in the report that I just presented to the Human Rights Council, I argued how uh, arbitrary deprivation of liberty. Mm. Uh, is part and parcel of this uh, of this attempt of this what seems to be a plan, and look at how imprisonment and mass imprisonment has functioned during the first intifada. One hundred thousand Palestinians were imprisoned um, during the second intifada. Seventy thousand Palestinians were imprisoned. Over time, the occupation has erected what I call an overall architecture of imprisonment, which is made of wall, uh, settlements, um, suffocating Palestinian towns and villages, uh, segregated roads that are not just an act uh, form of discrimination because the uh, Palestinians are prevented from accessing that. But there are also arteries that curtail uh, Palestinian of movement from one place to another and uh, the physical barriers are countless things of the think of the thousand checkpoints uh, like the the fixed uh, permanent checkpoints and then the flying checkpoints and on top of it there are what i call the bureaucratic barriers the the maze of hundreds of permits that the palestinians need to have in order uh, to um, to carry out any act of life, from choosing residence, building a house, uh, cultivating, access, accessing their land, uh, deciding where whether to visit their family across, for example, the West Bank and and the Gaza Strip, or the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, there has been this little by little this structure of. Uh, physical confinement that has somewhat complemented, if not um, uh, supplemented, what happens in, in prison. So they're incarcerated no matter what, and, and they're also digitally surveilled. So where are the Palestinians in all this? Their space, physical and psychological, is shrunk more and more, and this is they are threatened. I mean, their very existence as a people is threatened. Yes, I mean, your 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 report was, uh, as you know, is subject to um, a press stakeout at UN headquarters. The Secretary General was uh, was asked some questions, not least by uh, one of my old colleagues, Sherwin Bryce Peace from South Africa Broadcasting, and he wanted to know whether it really was time for the United Nations to send in a special. Uh, protection force. I mean, the Secretary General sort of wandered off the podium at that stage and didn't give an answer. Uh, you know, that kind of seems like a total impossibility. But there's a question here specifically for you, Francesca. This is from, from E.T. Um, I don't know who E.T. is, but E.T. says, Francesca, you've worked as a human rights expert in MENA, AP, and numerous contexts. 
How does the resistance you personally face to your work on Palestine compare to other contexts? What does this reveal? It doesn't compare to anything I faced before in my life, in the sense that there is, uh, I mean, I've been, of course, you know, especially when I was working with the with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, um, providing technical assistance to government or national prevent uh, sorry national human rights commissions, you would often come out with a, with a critical view of uh, of national. Uh, legislations or practices, and I've never faced any real resistance. Um, what I'm facing now as a special rapporteur is not unexpected, but it's absolutely unprecedented. I, I don't think that I will ever face anything as as massive as that in any, in any other position, because even if you look at other special rapporteurs or other People in the UN system, it's it's very rare to find an, an institution, a mandate that attracts uh, so much, um, um, uh, so much. Yeah. But even but again, let's put things in context because I also enjoy an incredible um, solidarity, and this means more than anything else to me from the UN diplomatic com the diplomatic community. You know there is uh, there is a, a clear um, a clear apparatus designed to silence anyone who expresses or raises any criticism toward Israel, but not as a state. This is not my job. I have nothing specific on the state of Israel per se. It's the way it treats the Palestinians. This mm. is this, and this is what we should be talking about. And I'm sorry, yep. the Secretary didn't answer the question that was raised. Rana Shubert says, why are you only focusing on Palestine since the 1967 occupation? I mean, you know, Rana, essentially Francesca is the special rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territories. And we're talking about her report specifically on that today. But we will come to Neri, if we may, because there is a question, obviously, and it relates to, to what you're saying, Rana, that... Um, you know, this, there is a huge turmoil uh, seizing civil society in Israel right now. Um, uh, I suppose the question is, given that, you know, what might loosely be determined as or described as liberal Israeli opinion is has taken to the streets against uh, Netanyahu's um, legal reforms, which, uh, which they don't see as reforms at all, um, and they see that their civil liberties and human rights are going to be affected by these proposed changes. Do you pick up any kind of um, a sort of idea of, amongst uh, Israelis marching in these great demonstrations that actually uh, there should be solidarity with the Palestinians? Because a lot of this stuff has presumably been tried out on the Palestinians first. There is a small block inside the protest that is talking about the occupation and, are tr and is trying to... Uh, to manifest uh, some kind of solidarity with Palestinians, but it's a very small block. The majority of the protest is a very much mainstream, even mainstream right-wing kind of liberal uh, uh, de demonstration who have a blind spot about what's happening in Palestine, like most of Israelis. It's, 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 it's kind of amazing 
when you speak with Israel is the, 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 the ability of them not to see what is happening in their own country or it's not even not to see but the, their choice not to be not to see what is happening so um, it might be that uh, in the end they will be pushed the people who are fighting for for the Israeli court who is actually the Israeli Supreme Court this is the main uh, reason why the demonstrators are outside but the Israeli Supreme Court is is one of the most oppressive court for Palestinians in its decisions so mm. uh, might be that in the end they might see the similarity but at the moment I don't think we could put our hope there our hope is not inside Israel no but do you see a kind of almost an existential um struggle a sort of battle if you like between liberal Israelis and and orthodox hardliners and how how I mean it's very difficult all of this but how, how could this possibly pan out and how could this affect Palestinians as well I mean you really do get the present uh, impression there's such a deep schism in Israel there's a battle for the whole soul of people um and it will have an impact on Palestinians as well so what what is your comment it, it will first impact Palestinians <laughs> but it is unfortunately a very Israeli Jewish debate at the moment at the moment it's a very in, internal uh, uh, Israeli Jewish debate about uh, the face of the country and I think what everybody is feeling is that it, demography is a key a key issue here you know um, there, there are there are less and less liberal uh, Jewish voices in Israel and more and more religious uh, right-wing uh, voices and there was a very sad shift that ultra-orthodox Judaism was never really into uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's kind of was uh, um, sailed into the right in the last uh, in the last ten years, and now is they are really part of the hardcore right, who mm -hmm. has a vision about uh, cleaning Palestine from Palestinians and establishing a big uh, Jewish land. From the yeah. from the sea to, to Jordan. Um, thank 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 you, Neri. There's a question. This is for Saha. This is from Richard, and he's he's uh, in London. Um, Richard says, "Greetings, Saha, and solidarity." Your organization, Adamir, was one of six organizations targeted in late 2021 when Israel, the Israeli government, designated you and five other organizations as a terrorist organization. Um, on what basis did they say that you were a terrorist organization? How, and how has that affected your, your ability to operate? So the case of the seven organizations that were illegalized back in 2001 reflects perfectly this system of oppression and control and uh, uh, um, policies of uh, not just apartheid, but... Uh, I would say the continuous attack against human rights defenders and activists. So basically because of our work, uh, uh, all of us in different uh, levels, whether on the agriculture, the women rights, the children rights, the prisoners, the general human rights issues, and even the research, because Bisan Center, one of the organizations is a research uh, center that was targeted, reflects our success 
in trying uh, to seek uh, accountability and uh, causing this change on the uh, uh, discussion on the international level, talking about apartheid, about accountability, about racism, uh, seeking uh, uh, justice via the IC, the International Criminal Court, all this work and definitely supporting the boycott, divestment and sanction campaign, all these uh, uh, efforts led for a very long smear campaign that came before the real designation. We were attacked for more than 15 years by different Israeli right-wing groups like NGO Monitor, UK Lawyers for Israel, Shurat Adin, Rigavim, and tens for, uh, of other organizations. And at the end, I believe that the personal issue, because Gantz himself is one of the uh, uh, names that were submitted to the uh, uh, International Criminal Court over the war uh, on Gaza in 2014 as responsible for committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. And this is what caused him to take this initiative to use the anti-terror law and to designate us. And just three weeks after his decision, the military commander issued a military order declaring us as illegal organizations. We all decided not to uh, uh, obey this uh, decision. We continued uh, uh, our work, our offices, all of us, the seven, were raided last year in August 2022. They confiscated lots of property from the organizations. They destroyed the furniture inside the organizations. They even arrested some of the colleagues from the health work committees back in 2021. But all these efforts will never stop us from continuing our work. Uh, uh, we know that now maybe we are not facing more uh, measures, but we are aware that they are trying to attack our donors. It's any moment that they can raid again, they can arrest us, they can uh, ban us from travel outside the country. They can use lots of measures to intimidate and harass and affect our uh, daily work. But all the time that we are still here, we would continue our work, even as my colleague Shawan, the director of Al-Haq said, even if they will arrest us, we will continue to follow and report and document violations from inside the prison and communicate with Niri and Francesca to uh, lobby in our behalf. Well, good good luck, uh, Saha and, and Niri. Um, there's a question here. This is from um, Ed Ladawi. Um, Ed says, the level of PTSD in Palestinian children has surpassed the levels of adult war veterans. I'm. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm assuming this is um, war veterans in Israel-Palestine. Is there any organisation explaining these facts to the mainstream media, uh, and and elsewhere in the world in any way? Do you, I mean? Do, do you pick up on that, Saha? That PTSD in Palestinians is 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 it, is it really really quite extreme levels? Uh, very very high levels. It is, and I would uh, recommend there was a, a new report published by mm. our colleagues, one of the six organizations, Defense for Children, and they are reflecting about uh, uh, 
all the related uh, violations that the, prison, the child prisoners face inside the prison. And uh, we, like me, myself and my colleagues, dealing, and I'm sure uh, Neri, but maybe Neri because he's not meeting the children outside the prison, there is uh, lots of symptoms that these children develop after the release. Mainly, they don't go back to their school. They don't sleep uh, properly at night. Most of them, they will uh, wet uh, uh, their beds at night. And uh, lots, and especially girls, like girls will face even more restrictions from their families and small children that they are young as 14. The family would be very uh, uh, terrified after the release that they could be rearrested. So the care would mean that they will lock them uh, in the house. So the circumstances for the children after the release are really difficult. Some of the organizations like uh, uh, the YMCA with Save the Children, DCI, and other centers try to offer the psychological proper treatment for these children. And I would say that Israel intentionally targeting children in order to affect the whole Palestinian young generation because they know the impact. They know exactly what is the impact on the children. And the last uh, proposal for a new legislation in the Israeli criminal code is to enable custodial imprisonment for those between 12 and 14 years old that the Israeli criminal code before this proposal were enabling to have them in rehabilitation centers instead of custodial imprisonment till they reach 14 and then transfer them to prison. So the current government even wants to change this procedure and they want to send the children for custodial imprisonment. So they know what they are doing and they're targeting children in purpose. Judy Andler comes in and uh, Judy says the uh, Gaza Mental Health Center has much documentation describing PTSD as a result of constant bombing, death of family members and more. Um, uh, Adam Broomberg has a question. This might be a question uh, for you, Francesca, if it's all right. Adam Broomberg says, Does, do you know any, of a link to the International Criminal Court's new hotline for people to report war crimes committed by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territories? Is there, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as a hotline? Yeah, it was announced. It was announced, uh, um, I think, a couple of days ago um, by the Office of the Prosecutor that there will be a platform an online platform for victims to submit, um, the, to make submissions. Um, and so, I've, to, to be uh, totally honest, uh, Adam, I've not had the time to study this this proposal. Of course, it's welcome. Although, although I want to say that it's less than what the previous uh, prosecutor used to used to offer in a way, because there was an open, really an open channel for many uh, representatives of victims and uh, victims themselves. Now there is, a, I mean, this is my experience and I would also like to hear from Neri um, and especially Sahar, but I, I feel that 
the Palestinians perceive a sense of distance and increase the sense of distance with uh, with the ICC. And in any case, I think that the amount of uh, of uh, cases of violations that have already been documented uh, and made the object of submissions to the ICC weren't. Um, the the deployment of investigators. The, it, I, I don't understand why it's taking so long to the office of the prosecutor to send investigators to the ground. Mm. Look, there's a question. This is for uh, Neri and also Saha. And it's a, it's a question that's quite pertinent um, because in this country, as you probably know, in the UK, there, there have been, there, there's legislation going through Parliament that would outlaw elected local authorities from effectively um, sort of boycotting um, uh, goods from the occupied Palestinian territories. And that has brought about a sort of wider questioning about what uh, what powers government might use to try and limit the boycott and divestment and sanctions uh, campaign. So, I mean, coming to you, Neri, I mean, how, how, how important do you think that BDS is uh, for uh, helping, uh, well, essentially the, the work that, that you do in a way by 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 throwing a spotlight on what is happening. I mean, how effective do you, and do you think it's necessary, both first to you, Neri, and then to Saha, how important do you think this boycott and divestment sanctions campaign is? I think that at the moment, Israelis, although they are wrong, are feeling that they are paying no price for their control in the occupation occupied territories, or that they are paying price that is good enough for, for them, uh, you know, for that control. And it's unbelievable from from my side, you know, there, there are many countries who that has uh, that are violating human rights in the world, but I don't think we have such a clear example of a country that has so many documented violations of human rights and has no sanctions against, nothing. It's going. Uh, the, the prime minister is going around the world and accepted in all the Western countries with great respect. A little bit of uh, you know of criticism, but nothing more. And I, I, the only way to solve, if there is a way to solve what's happening in Israel Palestine, is that the powerful side will feel that it needs to solve. And without BDS, the Israelis will never feel that they need to do anything because everything is working fine. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Saha. I think the PDS is a very needed uh, strategy because as Francesca described in her uh, uh, introduction in the first question about the failure of the international community to find Israel accountable uh, uh, via the legal procedures, whether the universal jurisdiction, that we never succeeded to convince any court in any country, neither in the UK or in Spain or in Belgium or in any other country that implements universal jurisdiction to prosecute one of the Israeli uh, uh, perpetrators or now with the ICC that we are waiting since 2014 for the prosecutor office to initiate uh, investigation. And there's no other mechanisms that we can use on the international level in order to make them 
feel the accountability in order to pay the price, as Neri said. And this is why the PDS is is all is is actually the most powerful tool uh, in our hands, whether as organizations calling for divestment from international corporations or as individuals that they are deciding to boycott products that coming from settlements. And of course, always asking, we will continue asking states to impose sanctions. Why this tool, legal tool, is used by the Security Council in other contexts, in Iraq, in Sudan, in, in uh, the Russian-Ukrainian uh, context now, but never against Israel. This is the best of and the double standards that actually makes Palestinians frustrated from the UN system. Mm. Ori Nir has got a question. He'd come back at you and, and would say, well, look, if West Bank Palestinians uh, illegally engage in violence against Israelis or other Palestinians, how do you suggest that Israelis author Israeli authorities deal with them? Should they not be subject to incarceration? That's for I you, Saha. That's a question from uh, Ori Nir. Oh, we've lost the sound. We've lost your sound. Okay. Neri, oh, you're yeah, I, would say, I would say if it was the question of of Palestinian uh, uh, violent and what do we need to do with them, if that was what we were discussing here, it will be a different day discussion. We are talking about a systematic way to oppress the Palestinian people. Mm. Yes, it, during my time as a lawyer in the military court, I met, I have to say, very few Palestinians who actually acted violently against Israeli. Mm. Most of my work was dealing with strange in, uh, uh, indictments against minors and human rights activists that has nothing to do with violence against them. So yes, if, if, if Israel will only, uh, you know, uh, bring to, to, to court uh, Palestinians who took, who took violence as their last effort against Israeli targets, we would be in a much better shape. But we are not there. This mm. is not what the military system does. The military system is, is, is there to suppress the whole population. And it doesn't really do the difference between those who actually act or do something and the majority who are not. Well, look, thanks. Thanks, Neri. Unfortunately, we are really running out of time. So we've got one last question. Um, and this is for uh, Francesca. This is from Omar in London. Um, uh, he says, at the heart of much of the West commitment to Israeli impunity uh, is surely an element of anti-Palestinian racism. How can we hold anti-Palestinian racists accountable? Um, I know we are running out of time, but I take I, I ask your permission to add mm. two elements uh, to course. what Mary was saying before, because I think it's very important. I um, I spent six months really looking at why arrest and detention is so massive. It's a small place and the numbers are astonishing. Uh, so there are almost 1 million people because the 800,000 Palestinians are arrested at least once. So this is, this is something that has been cited since 2006. So, um, and, uh, and why is so? So I encourage people who are following the show to really look 
at the part of the report where I describe what are the legal grounds that lead Palestinians to be arrested uh, by the Israeli uh, military. Israel, the, 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 and when we talk about laws, let me be more explicit. This is a maze of about 2,500 military orders written by soldiers, applied by soldiers, reviewed by soldiers. So even when we talk of military courts, these are soldiers, these are not professional judges, and their law, their job is to apply military law, martial law. They're not experts in civilian law, uh, Israeli civilian law, let alone human rights. So this is the context. And I, I provide examples about 20 examples of the conduct that commonly lead Palestinians to be arrested. And it's really about the exercise of ordinary acts of life and sometimes really basic rights and freedoms. Because, for example, being a member, this is one of the most astonishing, but also the most telling, being part of a gathering of 10 or more people where something political might be discussed, it can be a vigil, it can be a protest, but technically it could also be a wedding, which is not authorized by the army, can lead to 10 years imprisonment. Entering a, a zone that is considered closed, closed, declared closed by the army, can lead to seven years imprisonment. And actually, more than 20% of the West Bank alone is considered closed area. But these are areas that the military has declared closed, but there are Palestinians living in them, in there. So going to a court, sorry, going to school, going to a doctor, you can be arrested really for virtually anything, for farming your land, for fishing. And and this is why Neri was saying we really mm -hmm. don't see many Palestinians who have been arrested because of committing violent acts. And now let's go back to, sorry, Ori's question. Nothing we are saying should be taken as, oh, Palestinians who commit uh, acts of violence should be condoned or should, or should be justified. No, but anyone who commits an act of violence is, to, is entitled to, to guarantees of um, fair trial and to a judicial system that is not the military. And let's go back to, to the, a more contextual and overarching point. Because she's asking how is Israel should not arrest and detain Palestinians who commit acts of violence. First of all, the act of violence should be qualified because Israel maintain an army, which is also the vehicle for oppression uh, that has been ongoing for 56 years. And without justifying acts of violence, this is a coercive environment that requires a lot of violence and triggers violence in response. But also, what is the reason why Israel is in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and encloses, blockades Gaza in the first place? After 56 years, Israel shouldn't be there. Israel confuses the security of its metropolitan <clears throat> territory with the security of its annexation plan in the occupied Palestinian territory. Thank you, Francesca. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, unfortunately, we really have run out of time. Um, I'd just like to say thank you, to, obviously, to Francesca, to Neri and to Saha for joining us today. Thank you for all of you uh, who are out there who have been watching, taking part and sending your questions in and commenting. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't go through uh, all of them. 
please do subscribe to uh, Palestine Deep Dive on YouTube uh, if you haven't. Uh, also, this show will end up in lots of different ways out there in the media, not least on Twitter, etc. Uh, there will be key uh, excerpts edited and put out there. So please do share as widely as possible. There are not that many forums that actually have um, the opportunity to examine in the kind of depth uh, we have today this issue and indeed this particular report. Uh, so thank you so much, Francesca, for all that you do. Thank you also, Neri and Sahar. Uh, more power to your elbow, your collective elbows, and uh, let's meet again soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bye-bye, everyone.